0: But I'm going to just go ahead and invite uh, Jay Schiffman up to share his story. So let's give it up for Jay.
1: Welcome to the Choose Your Struggle podcast. I am your host, Jay Schiffman. Hey, y'all. Welcome back to the Choose Your Struggle podcast. Very quick introduction today because, as you can guess, if you're listening to it the day it drops, it's Monday, May the 4th. May the 4th be with you to all my Star Wars fans. Which means today is not a normal Choose Your Struggle podcast day. Instead, it's a special episode day. Huge shout out to just an incredible coach. His name is Eric G. Reed, for all of you who want to go look him up, Eric G. Reed, he leads the Success Life Master Series. You can find a link to his Facebook group in the notes for this episode. He reached out and was like, hey, let's chat. And I was delighted. And we had a wonderful time, as you'll hear on this episode. So I'm releasing it as a special episode because he was so kind to let me do so. I hope you enjoy it. That's it. I'm going to take a break. Enjoy this special episode, and you'll hear me again on Friday with a regular every week episode of the Choose Your Struggle podcast. No good egg today. No choose your card. Uh, That comes on Fridays, as you know. So anyway, enjoy the episode, and I will talk to you guys again on Friday. Have you ever thought about starting your own podcast and then thought, man, I just... I don't even know where to begin. Well, I have the perfect answer for you. It's Anchor. They have all the tools you need to get started right away, all in one spot. You can do it from your phone or your computer. They'll even distribute for you, so you don't have to go looking for places to get your podcast out. But the best part is it's all free. That's right. You can sign up today without any hassle at all. You can even start making money right from the beginning. It's everything you need in a podcast in one place. So check it out today. Go to anchor.fm or download the free Anchor app to get started.
0: Good afternoon, everybody, and welcome to today's Success Life Masters series. I am so fortunate that when I reach out to so many amazing people and ask if they would come and share their story, their experience here with us, I get a yes. I I love understanding other people and other people's stories. And more important, celebrating their journey. Now, everybody has a journey. Everybody has a story to tell. And how we arrive at the point that we're at can't be overlooked on how we got there. So often we see people that are living life with success. They've seemed to have the marriage or the business or the relationships or the incomes. And we're like, man, they got it all. But often we forget that they didn't come into this earth fully formed in the current position that they're at, that there was a struggle and a story behind it. And if we don't honor that struggle and that story, then we really don't honor the success in the moment that they're having. And so being a part of the Success Life Series and the Master Series is really about celebrating the journey that we each take to discover and create our own level of success. So for some, it may be running a multimillion-dollar company. For some, it might be being able to, for the first time, engage with their family or their children or writing a book or traveling and having an adventure or being successful in their recovery. Each of us has a definition of what success feels like for us today and in this moment. And so it's because of that, that I will continually always seek out other people's stories. I will always engage with other people. And now in the middle of this COVID, you know, got to tell you, having a little bit of the jitters thing, you know, trying to get out there and meet people and engage with people or go to the mall and create stories about people that I see isn't happening. But then again, instead of complaining about it, and bitching and moaning and telling everybody how rotten life is, I have been able to adopt this medium of social media and StreamYard in particular to connect with some amazing people that maybe just maybe I wouldn't have been able to had it not been for COVID. So I want you to take a moment and just think about the people in your life that you have wanted to connect with and haven't or ideas or thoughts or experiences that you want to have with other individuals and then begin to seek them out and find their story. I was fortunate enough to just send Jay a letter and say, hey, love to have you and your journey and you teach me about which struggles to pick because Lord, I pick them all. I keep getting yelled at as a parent, pick your battles. They're all battles. That's what I keep saying. Everyone is a battle. Why does it always have to be a battle? But I think we're gonna get some insight onto that in just a moment. So let me run down to the virtual green room, grab our guests. Why I'm doing that, do me a favor, take a moment and like, share, comment, and, and let other people know what's going on here in the Your Success Life group. And there he is, straight from the
1: green room. (laughs) it's great to be here thank you so much for having me
0: thank you Um, I really appreciate it like I was saying there's this experience of COVID is you know both created distance and I think in some ways created new communities so thank you for being a part of this community and for stepping into it with us
1: no, I I couldn't agree more. Um, I run a, a podcast, the, the Choose Your Struggle podcast, hence the hence the name. That's my that's my brand. But I've had the absolute pleasure of uh, interviewing some amazing people that I think I normally wouldn't be able to. Not because you know I don't think they would want to interact, but everyone's so busy, and now we're all forced to stay at home, and this is how we're having the chance to connect. So you know it's it's been awful in so many ways, but there are a couple of little tiny nuggets of of goodness that have come with it. And I think long-term, we're all going to learn something about ourselves and about others during this period. That's
0: my hope. And I hope that we don't rubber band back to the old way, that this has forced us to change our perspective and change our thinking. I sometimes worry that we can quickly shrink back to our original shape after being stretched out. I had somebody say the other day that so many celebrities are home and bored because they're not on movie sets or doing TV interviews or traveling, that it's really easy to get celebrity endorsements.
1: <laughs> because They're
0: like, I'm bored. I'll be yeah. happy to endorse your product. So any of those you know, A-list celebrities like Anderson Cooper, J-Lo, you know, that whole group, if you're sitting around your board and you want to come and do success life, as soon as Jay and I finish, <laughs> I'll go ahead and open a spot for you as well. Yeah, Tell a little bit about Jay. Uh,
1: so, so Jay, um, I live on Daniel Island in in South Carolina with my wife, Lauren and our dog, Nell. We moved down here in August uh, last, last year uh, from Cincinnati where, where I was born and raised. And, um, we, she and I've been married now for about a year and a quarter, a year and a third. <laughs> uh, um, yeah, You're still keeping track. He's not going to let that anniversary slip past. No, 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 I won't. Uh, <laughs> and and um, you know, my story is is you know very long and convoluted. But the the short of it is that I am ten years in recovery from a prescription pill addiction. Um, I've told that story a lot. And if you if you want to follow me, you can check out my website, uh com or my podcast that I previously mentioned and hear hear it in detail somewhere else. We don't we don't need to get into all those details. But essentially what I do now is you know, I was forced to learn good mental health habits and in pretty much the worst way imaginable. And my goal, the thing I get out of bed every day to do is help other people learn those habits uh, without having to go through what I went through.
0: And it's interesting because when we talk about mental health and we talk about addiction, and we talk primarily as men about addiction, sometimes, you know, the the housewife of the 50s and 60s that was addicted to the Valium, sort of became the breakthrough for women where they started speaking about their health issues and men i don't know if we've ever had that pinnacle moment in history where we started denouncing our addiction and especially prescription addiction and painkillers because you had a journey where it was a necessity and then the necessity became a habit
1: that's right and you make a great point the mother's little helper as as they call it for, for women in the 50s but I actually was talking about this with a guy who will be on my podcast in a couple of weeks, an old friend of mine. There was an article, I, we were talking about this morning, but there's an article that I read a couple months ago that's that they did a survey. This was in, I, I believe it was psychology today. Uh, it was over 90% of male relationships focus on one of three topics and that's uh, sports, it's women and it's music. Those are the top three. And if you include uh, media mo- movies, TV, that kind of thing, it's almost a hundred percent. And that just it floored me when I read that and I made the, the dedication that day that I wasn't going to keep falling into that trap because I realized that was true my two best friends we've known each are uh, you know as a group the three of us have been friends for over 20 years and I realized that we spend most of our time talking about sports women you know music and uh, I made a I made a rule for us that day that we can talk about those things but we also then have to talk about real issues that go beyond that and it's completely changed our friendship and i can't tell you how many times i've heard the words i love you from both of them since that day because we started breaking past those easy conversations
0: and i it's funny i was reading we were talking about our our love of books um i was reading a book the other day and the question was asked something about who's your closest friend no not your spouse yeah like the next line and i was like who is my closest friend? And it was, and it, you know, when I like had to furrow the brow and ask like, who is my closest friend? Like I have certain friends that I can go to, to talk about sports, talk about music, talk about movies, talk about business, but who would be the person that I could pick up and say, I'm in the middle of a mental health breakdown. Right. Like I have an issue and I need a judgment-free male friend. Right. Right we are taught to cultivate that as men no because we're taught to be competitive we've got to be the king of the the jungle not just one of the the members in the jungle so to speak how much of that mindset led to you not being able to search out recovery for a long time
1: yeah so i think that there's there's two very good points in there. And, and the first is that you're right. It's sort of, um, you know, we're, we're taught when we're younger that women are allowed to share their feelings and men aren't, you know, we're we're told that, you know, go out there and play, you know, men are supposed to be strong. We're supposed to be, you know, as you said, that kind of the hunters and, and keeping that emotion in is, is what it means to be a man. So that's slowly starting to change. But for a long time, that was sort of the, the norm. The second is that as a society, Why is it, and again, this is also starting to change, but it it should have changed a long time ago. Why is it that we have PE, right? We're, We're taught physical education. If you're lucky enough, you went to a school that also taught health, you know, about what you put in your body or sex ed. We're never taught mental health. We're never taught behavioral health. Why is that? We're just supposed to rely on what we pick up. And a lot of what we pick up is not good. Uh, so it shouldn't be a surprise that a lot of people get to their adult lives struggling with these sorts of issues. And you're 100% dead on it, it. When I was going through the worst of my you know, addiction struggles, I didn't know who to talk to because addiction wasn't a thing that you talked about. You know, I had friends, friends, I want to put that in quotation, uh, that I used with friends that I partied with, um, and friends who knew that let's be honest, I was doing more than I should. But none of them, you know, until the day that I attempted suicide and overdosed, none of them really sort of tried to stop me. And luckily that day was the day that a couple of them did. And, and it's the reason that I ended up in the hospital that night instead of the morgue. But it, it, it shouldn't have taken for either one of us, for me to reach out and for the friends to do the same, me literally attempting to kill myself.
0: And, and it is such a double sword, you know, when you're in college and you're hanging out with the frat brothers and you're doing the things that the Animal House movie projects us as doing. Oh, he's just sowing his seeds. He's just, you know, being a man. He's, you know, he's doing what all boys do. Yay for him. He's learning his alcohol tolerance level at an early age. And yet if the girl would be doing that or the daughter, there would be all of these societal stereotypes you know what kind of girl is she don't bring that kind of girl home to mother that's not the kind of girl and so we're almost taught that it's courageous to abuse ourselves to beat ourselves against the wall and wake up the next morning and do it again that you know somehow that makes us men
1: yeah no there's definitely a lot of truth in that and and it is it is a sex there's a a gender divide and uh, again I think that's starting to change as we remove some of those stereotypes of what it means to be a woman and what it means to be a man that are almost to a a, a uh, stereotype harmful. Um, so that that is definitely a big part of it. For me, in my in my story, what made it even harder was that all of my drugs that I was abusing, I mean, I was drinking a lot, but it, it, there's a clear distinction between what I was doing, what I was abusing when it comes to something like weed, or something like beer, that i could stop if i wanted to and the pills that i could not stop the physical and mental mental dependency that i had on these substances and what made that so difficult was that they were all prescribed to me they all had my name on them uh, my drug dealer was walgreens and cvs so uh it, it made it even harder to have those conversations because even the times that i did say you know maybe i shouldn't be taking these Um, if you say that to your, you're a drug dealer, they're going to try to convince you, okay, I think you should still keep using my product. That's the same exact thing that my doctors did, you know? And so it made it incredibly difficult.
0: The little bottle even says, do not stop without first consulting your physician or your your primary health giver. And they come in those crisp white little outfits, (laughs) you know, it's almost (laughs) like they're nuns. It's like, how could they be doing me harm? Yeah. Yeah. Also, when you sit down and you speak with them and you don't tell the full extent, it's because you're in addiction and you don't want to tell them the full story. When you took your life or attempted to take your life through um, an overdose. What was it you were trying to step out of? Because so many people say, oh, they just wanted to kill themselves. And you and I know that's not what's really happening in those moments.
1: That's right. Yeah. Um, well, so to make it even more uh, convoluted, my story, the, the the drugs I was being prescribed were supposed to be treating. Um, I had been given the label of bipolar. And it turns out that everything I was feeling, you know, I, I still say this, I'm very upfront with the fact that I still struggle with some with some depression, anxiety, uh, low level OCD. But all of those things were amplified to the max uh, when I was on all these prescriptions. And as well, you know, a lot of the side effects I was experiencing were mania and the things that come with that. So the symptoms were all there. The only problem is they were, they were manufactured, so to speak. And when I got off of all of this, you know, my, the things I was struggling with were turned to low level as they were before. And uh, the things that were manufactured completely disappeared. So, What I was trying to get away from was that I'd been told now for about half a decade that I had this disorder uh, because they they beat that into me to the point where uh, I like to joke that my dad reminded me not long ago that I was set to get the words bipolar tattooed on my body because I was so convinced of my own label. And unfortunately, the drugs were making me worse, not better. Uh, And I couldn't I couldn't get better. Everything I did, everything that I was working on with my therapist made things worse. And so that summer of 2009, I had just gotten off the road, I was following a band around going to music festivals. And that was amazing. I mean, I was around other people that were also using a lot of drugs, and I could use anything I wanted in those settings and not be judged. And I think it was sort of the, the summer winding down and realizing that That i had to return to normal life and my normal life meant losing my battle to this mental illness and that's the day that that i gave up
0: i love how you speak of i was assigned that label and i want to first sort of throw in the public health thing that the doctors weren't ill intent they didn't label you that simply because you had good insurance They were truly working with what they had and trying to use their best judgment to bring you mental health. But at the same time, internally, we often know what are, what we need. And we don't always express that clearly. And I think more so again, going back to the, the issue is as men, we don't learn to identify our feelings. So when we're sitting in that situation with a therapist or a doctor and they're asking us how we feel, we may not be able to express it so they're only treating what they can see not what we know
1: yeah there is a whole lot of that so it was sort of a uh, there's two issues at play and in the first part is that 100% is that you know normally in the best of circumstances i still think i would have struggled explaining to them what was going on but in my you know eight old state and the, the, i i was not cognizant of a lot that was happening. And so that was definitely number one. But the second part is, I mean, I'm with you. I see a therapist now who's wonderful. I trust him implicitly. But the therapist I was seeing at that time, unfortunately, he knew that I was going through months worth of prescriptions in under two weeks, because I would have to go and get renewals. Um, <laughs> and they and do so, have to sign for those people. Exactly. And and he knew, I have the records that showed that at, by the end, I was using a month worth of my medicine in 12, uh, 12 days. Uh, but he kept signing for it. So there was a lot of unable to wrap our heads around what was going on. And there was also on his part, an inability to look in the mirror and say, you know, I may have screwed this one up and and instead to keep renewing what was clearly uh, now being abused. And by the end, I was taking clonopin, uh, which is the one that really got me the worst Um, if you've seen the show house, the way he treats his Vicodin, that's what I was doing with Klonopin. I would just take handfuls of this stuff a couple times a day and just throw it back. Uh, and, and, and I, by the end was taking what they believe to be the lethal dosage. I was above that every day. And it's amazing that I didn't, I didn't die.
0: And I almost slipped into the pattern of like, well, aren't you some superhero (laughs) that (laughs) can take a lethal dose and survive? but that almost reinforces the joke among men. It's like, ah, eh, it's not killing me, I can take more. Right. As you began to unwind, as you began to say, okay, this, is, this has got to stop. I am not gonna end up healthy and happy if this game stays on. You woke up the next morning, we're like, obviously there were a lot of people over you saying, you made a bad choice. We go through this honeymoon where everybody is supporting our recovery. Everybody is trying to help us find the next solution. And then they get bored and go back to their lives. <laughs> yeah. How did that, ha- like, that's the part that I sort of want to lean into. It's like, how did you decide to stay in that recovery, stay in that perspective of, of healing?
1: Well, so it started for me, um, I, was, I was living in, uh, I, was, I was in Massachusetts, in Stockbridge, Massachusetts, in a long-term care facility. I was there for three months. Uh, supposed to be getting treatment for my bipolar. And there I was lucky enough to meet a couple of amazing people with substance use disorders. And I started thinking, you know, this looks more like what I'm going through. And so I made that choice at the end of the three months I'd been there to check myself out and try to withdraw from medication. And at that point, there weren't a lot of people supporting that. The only person who really was like, let's do this, let's try it, was my grandmother, who allowed me to move in with her in Cornville, Arizona. And a <laughs> little...
0: You make it sound like a senior citizen center in the middle of nowhere. You know, it, it,
1: it, so here was our day. Uh, the only thing I had to look forward to was watching Ellen with her every day at three o'clock. Uh, so <laughs> you're not too far off, but... Uh, <laughs> But but living with her for for almost four months, um, withdrawing from all these medications I was on, you know, at that point, including myself, everyone was just sort of holding their breath to see what would come next. And when it became clear that, you know, I was going to I could do this, I could live without this medication. It took me, I would say, a solid five years to get to a point where my mental age and my maturity caught up with where I was supposed to be because I had never been allowed to have the sort of mental growth in my teenage years and my early 20s that I should have gone through because I was so inundated with chemicals. And it really took me until, uh, you know, my, my late 20s, uh, by the time I had graduated from college, I'd had a couple successful relationships that I could be able to say, OK, I am now this this sort of full person that that I should have been you know, half a decade or more ago. And, and there was not a lot of support, but it was mostly because there, for a long time, I kept this in for five years in recovery, I saw it as a mark of shame. I I wouldn't even say I was in recovery, you know, I I I didn't really know how to wrap my head around what had happened to me. And, uh, it took it took over half a decade before I when I had d- been doing a lot of reading, a lot of, you know, sort of trying to understand what addiction really was. And now here I am five years later from that. And this is what I do because I, I fully have leaned into that. And instead of a mark of shame, it's now I like to say it's the uh, the the first line of my biography and the last line of my obituary is, is the fact that I'm in recovery and and I fully embrace it. And, and I, I see it as a instead of a mark of shame is something that, you know, it it made me who I am.
0: And I really want to emphasize when we talk about being in recovery, there's almost like this hierarchy of recovery. Oh, you were in pain pill recovery, or you were in alcohol recovery, but you weren't doing crack. You weren't doing heroin. Or you didn't become home. It's recovery is recovery. And we each have different battles. We each have different struggles, so to speak, And recovery is that process of gaining mental health. That's right. That, you know, begins sometimes with a physical recovery, but it is always that gaining more clarity on who we are as individuals and through our mental perspective. And so it's fair to say that pretty much everybody is in some form of recovery if they're aware that they have space to grow into. Um, Jay is maybe just a little lucky because he knows (laughs) the date that his recovery began, where some of us walk through life waiting for that moment. Now that you're 10 years past, um, and I know there it has not been just you know, a Disney cruise out the port for 10 years, what are the challenges that you face as somebody in recovery and in awareness that's like, okay, my old self would have behaved, responded or managed it this way. I don't know how to manage or respond to it this way, but I know what I want it to look like?
1: Yeah, that's a wonderful question. I, um, I would say so the the biggest challenge for me is 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 sort of twofold. It's one it's ending the stigma. You know, it is something that I am so forward on and so upfront about that it puts some people back on their heels. And, um, you know, we're again, that's changing, but it's, it's too slow. And I talk about my my recovery so openly, um, because I want it to be a thing, you know, perfect example is I had a conversation with my own grandmother not long ago, not the one I live with a a different grandmother. And we, my aunt, unfortunately is currently going through chemo and she, my, my grandmother said, you know, you're so brave to share your story. And I said, I said, why? And she said, because it's it's just amazing. You talk about it. I said, yeah, I I mean, thank you. But would you say that, you know, my aunt is, is brave for telling her story? And she said, no. And I said, why? You know, she's brave for what she's going through. And you would agree with that. And She said, of course. And I said, but why am I brave for talking about my story? And she's not. And she's like, you know, she couldn't really articulate why she felt that way. And that's the stigma. You know, there's nothing different about going through a struggle with cancer and going through a struggle with with addiction. There shouldn't be anything different with the way we talk about it. So that's number one. Number two is there is, as you just so perfectly put, there is this unfortunate thinking wrapped around what a recovery is. And as we're now embracing, and this is much more, Um, the silent majority now recovery for you is what recovery works for you. You know, my recovery as you so perfectly put from pills is very different than someone who is struggling with with alcohol or struggling with whatever, you know, I'm not sober because alcohol has never been a problem for me. I can enjoy a glass of wine with my wife with dinner. I'm a huge whiskey guy. I think bourbon is God's gift to the planet. (laughs) You know, I can have a glass of whiskey uh, and not want 10, but I will never again, try it, you know, unless I absolutely have to, I will never go on pain pills. I will never, uh, try these, you know, antipsychotics or benzos because I don't know what it'll do to me. And I'm too terrified to find out.
0: So as you, so interestingly enough, as one of your buddies comes to you and you know, he's drinking heavily or that drinking is interfering with his ability to function in the normal world at his highest and best ability. How do you approach him friend to friend, buddy to buddy, man to man and say, we need to talk. And not, I mean, one, he, I can just hear the response. You don't get it. You were only addicted to pain pills.
1: Yeah.
0: Or you're yeah. Only addicted to pills. I, you know, like, I don't have a drinking problem.
1: You know I I think that, that that mindset is uh slowly being phased out. I I will say that when I first uh, got into recovery I tried AA. I, I, because at the time this is 2010 there isn't yet this known um, opioid epidemic. I mean, it's happening, but no one really knows about it yet. And so um, there weren't a lot of, of pill options. And there's still not really a lot of pill options. But at the time, AA was it, AA was the only way. And I was met with that. I went to one meeting and they kind of went, What are you doing here? You know, and I never went back. Um, so I definitely, I mean, that is very real. I will say that luckily uh, that is starting to change. And actually just uh, last week, I got a call from a guy who I went to high school with. And he said, I've seen your posting. Uh, you don't know this about me, but I'm you know, uh, in recovery. He's like six months in, but he was calling because a friend of his was going through the struggle today. I mean, and he said, I'm terrified of leaving. You know, I don't know if they're gonna make it through the weekend. And we had a nice, honest conversation went on for about a half an hour uh, about ways that this person could help their friend while still maintaining their own sobriety. And that's a tough line to walk because for him to be in recovery right now means 100% sobriety. Um, But he also was afraid of being there for this friend because he was afraid that he may end up using again. And it was a complicated conversation. But I was really lucky that there wasn't any of that. I mean, he brought that point up himself. He said, you know, it's tough for me sometimes because I, I don't understand what you went through. And I said, yeah, you do. I said, our, our stories are not that dissimilar. You know, uh, if yes, there were different substances and maybe you didn't spend your mornings, you know, wrapped around the toilet because you're going through withdrawals, but you understand that physical dependence. You understand that mental dependence. We've been through the same thing.
0: We, we have an expression of recovery. You know, if you can't be near the drug you love love the drug you're near. <laughs> Sometimes the behavior isn't the, or the drug isn't the problem, it's the behavior. Yeah. And we all have a common behavioral issue that we're trying to use a third, an outside source to recover or use to cover up. How difficult was it? So I wanna sort of bring this back because I remember growing up in a house with four sisters, that in itself give me, give me me extra credentials. But when you would look at the cover of the magazines that they would have, you know, it would be, you know, 12 ways to know that, you know, you're in a happy marriage. And like, there was a lot more, and then you look at the men's magazines, building the best abs, lifting the most weights, you know, maybe there's a little bit of male grooming in there, but very little. It's all about how, did you begin to cultivate these conversations where you would come into groups of men and begin to discuss feelings when there hadn't been a training ground for you?
1: Yeah, so I actually uh, I have two people to thank for that. There's a there's a, a good friend of mine in, in Cincinnati, Ohio, where where I was you know living. Who runs an organization called Cincy Stories, and this uh, is—it's a storytelling night where influential or well-known Cincinnatians get up on stage and tell their origin story. And until uh, he asked me to do it, I had never once spoken publicly about being in recovery. Uh, I had good friends who didn't know. Um, and he asked me to do it because he knew we had talked about it and I said, not going to happen. And he asked me three times and every time I said, dude, ain't going to happen. <laughs> Stop asking, you know, and no open night. <laughs> absolutely not. And so I just so happened to be going to see my parents for dinner, uh, like right after he asked me for the third time. And I mentioned to my dad that, that I was being asked to do this. And You know, I still remember this scene. He's sitting in his office at home and he's reading the New York Times and he's got it up in front of his face. And he asked me, you know, why, why aren't you doing it? And I said, you know, I'm really scared of what people are going to say. And I've never really talked about this before. And he slowly lowers the paper as only a father can do. And he looks at me and he goes, fear is never a good reason not to do something. And then he flips the paper back up and keeps reading as (laughs) if he didn't realize that he just blew my entire world apart, you know? Your so, dad
0: must have gone to the same school as my dad. Those one-liners. It's like now get on with life.
1: Yeah, right. <laughs> so uh, I went back to my buddy the next day and was like, "Hey, man, ask me again." And he did, and I said yes. And and uh, that was 2015. And I told my story on election night of 2015, and it just started a snowball where uh, I was asked to do a TED uh, TED talk not long after that. And uh, after that was just started. You know, it, it picked up uh, picked up steam and. It became the kind of thing where once you get that positive affirmation, right, once you get that response that makes you feel good about being open with it, you start to internalize it. And in five years, I went from I have good friends that don't know my story to being that guy that people know, okay, he's, he's the recovery guy. He's the mental health guy. You know, he's someone we can talk to. And during this, this lockdown that the coronavirus lockdown, that's what I've been doing just to help as much as I can is posting about this and saying, if you need someone to talk to uh, you know, I've, I've been doing a lot of my coaching for people that I know for free, because so many people just don't know what to do with these emotions and these feelings that they're experiencing right now. So, uh, that's been, that's been, uh, incredibly nice that I feel good about being able to help people in that way. And it's made me very busy because so many people just need someone to be there right now.
0: And, and I have seen it in my own coaching practice where I think there's this silent spike. That's like, everybody's holding on thinking tomorrow, next week, go back to normal. And then I can start my recovery, start to, you know, taper off whatever their phrase is. That it's, I mean, there is there's just this wave waiting to crash into the shores. We're seeing it now beginning with our healthcare workers who are going home and, you know, committing suicide because they're just exhausted. They, they yeah. can't be, they're done. We're seeing it, you know, with parents and school, school children. I am connected to the foster care industry here, uh, industry um, services mm-hmm. here in Georgia. And a lot of our kids aren't coming into care because they're not going to school where abuse and neglect can be reported. They're kind of living just off the radar that when that radar screen starts up again, we're going to discover a lot more about our friends and neighbors than maybe we anticipated. I want to bring it from the TED Talk stage down to you've been married now a year and three quarters. Um, (laughs) When you when you met your wife or your future wife at the time, it's easy to do a TED talk because there's there's a more than a six foot distance. When you sit down with somebody that you like want to build a life with, and you have to have that conversation of honey, I think I would need to tell you about this problem I have. Unless she was one of your TED Talk fans,
1: <laughs> no. it was a
0: different conversation. How do we have that conversation? whether we need to begin recovery or we're in recovery with those people that can make it hurt the most if they don't listen.
1: Yeah. So uh, for me, I met my now wife uh, about nine months after I first gave my talk. And so I was already, that ball was rolling. And the first thing, not the first thing, but uh, I, I still remember it was our third date. Um, I told her, I told her this whole story. And I even sent her my talk. And I said, You should watch this.
0: Instead Um, of dessert, we're going to be watching a movie. And it me.
1: (laughs) I I was basically, no, not not even that. I said, Here's your homework before our next date. Uh, I (laughs) sent her. I
0: just see you sitting at the Waffle House going, Is she coming? Is she coming? Yeah, right.
1: So here's the funny thing is that she was completely open to it. She sat down, we had a great conversation about it. And then, She uh, was like, you know, the only thing I'm worried about is, you know, my I sent this to my mom and I was like, look how brave this guy is. And she said, well, you know, what if he relapses? And so that got a really good conversation going was um, not that my wife, you know, was was worried about this, but she got questions. And I said, here's how you answer those questions. And so um, it it was it was sort of a blessing uh, that, that I did that pretty early um and and said, You know this is me this is I'm very upfront about this now uh this is new to me still is being very upfront about this, but uh it's hard i, I definitely would not minimalize that a- at all uh and say to you know the listeners that that this is it isn't a difficult uh conversation because it is um and and there's a reason that people keep it silent, and that is the stigma is real you know there there is a lot of a lot of work being done to try to end that stigma uh, around issues of addiction and mental health but um we have a long way to go
0: and i do have to say that it's it's difficult for the observer or the non active user because it's like is this the beginning and if i call him out is that's okay if i call him out or is it not okay if i call him out and i don't want him to feel like i'm watching but i do want to be cautious and make sure i'm watching because so that's why they have support groups, right? Or spouses, friends, families, et cetera, of those in recovery. And I encourage anybody that's, it doesn't matter how close you are to the person that's actively in recovery, get your own mental health, get your own support and coaching and therapist, because you have a right to be nervous. You have a right to be concerned about your safety, their safety, the impact on the family and the finances. Often I'll be coaching somebody who's, you know, maybe active in recovery, and they'll get upset, you know, well, my spouse still keeps a separate bank account. I'm like, and you don't see why? Well, I've been in recovery for three years. It's like, yeah, but you feel safe. They're still learning to feel safe. Yeah. Like, you're in a different journey than them. And they had to wait until you started to be healthy before they could start to get healthy, because they've been just waiting for that. So I do encourage everybody that's around somebody um, that is in recovery to get your own. So that led you to creating the Choose Your Struggle. <laughs> so great. I yeah. like these, Everything is a battle with my type of personality. <laughs> Talk about the Choose Your Struggle and how you really came to make that your mantra.
1: <laughs> yeah. So um, that was born from the very first time I spoke publicly about uh, being in recovery that night on election night in 2015. Um, to me, choose your struggle means a couple of different things. Number one, for a long time, I wasn't able to choose what I struggled for. My struggle was to get out of bed, to, uh, get off the couch, to avoid withdrawals. Uh, that was my life. And then when I entered recovery, I made the pledge to myself. Um, it all goes back to actually the night that I sat when I call my rock bottom moment where I reached out to, you know, whatever the deity that I wanted to be there and got nothing in return, and decided that night that if I was going to enter recovery, it was going to be on my own back that I was going to have to do this myself. And it was the best thing that could have happened to me, because I sort of just powered up and said, I'm going to do this. And if I if I do this, I'm going to use my second chance more wisely. You know, we live in a world where especially in this country, but a lot of people aren't even given the 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 chance to have their first chance, right? I have so much privilege that not only did I get to throw away my first chance, but I'm now getting a second one. There is nothing that could stop me to, from using that in a better way. And so that's choose, choose your struggle to me is that I had it laid out for me. And I said, you know what, damn it, I'm going to do this. So, that's sort of the origin of choose your struggle. But what it really comes down to is we live in a in a society now where it's like people want us to care about everything all the time. <laughs> you know, we are spread so thin. And and look, don't get me wrong. There's a lot to care about right now, and it and it does feel like that meme of the the little dog sitting in a room that's on fire saying this is fine, right? I mean, that's that's where we are. But at the same time, if we all care about everything, nothing's going to get done because all we're going to do is just keep squabbling, right? I mean, we need people who are saying, I trust you all to handle that. I'm focusing on this. You know what I mean? And 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 just setting their sights on the thing that they believe is the most important to them. And to me, that is addiction and mental health. I you know, my wife and I are big um, into to working in our communities. I worked in nonprofits for over half a decade and then in politics for a couple of years. We volunteer our time, our our money, our, our talent a lot. But the ones that I will always focus on, the ones that rise above everything else, the ones that I dedicate myself to every single day are the issues of addiction and mental health.
0: And I, I, that's not to say you don't care about that's right. breast health or children in foster care or autism or hungry in Ethiopia, you know that you have a particular voice that has a particular position in the men's mental health issue, and especially men in mental health and recovery from prescription drugs. And you would dilute that voice by lending it or using it in any other platform. And so I love the idea that if we're going to Choose a struggle, choose the struggle that we can speak most authentically into because we'll be able to make the biggest impact and transformation in other people's lives. And so, you know, I sometimes in what I love about this series is meeting somebody who's so passionate about mental (laughs) health or somebody else may be passionate about this and that and knowing that I've got this resource or these collaborative connections that I can be like, I'm not the guy. Like I could talk to you right. about recovery because I have that. And my history is education. But I think at this moment, you need him. That's or, right. Or if it's a different situation. Now that you've sort of chosen your struggle and you understand that your voice sits well with mental health. And I love the fact that when I was doing my social stalking, you actually ran campaigns. Yeah. Been there, done that, lived that nightmare. Yeah. <laughs> It's a great if you want to learn about marketing, sign up to run a
1: campaign. <laughs> yeah, and not even that. You know, it, it. I one of the reasons I finally had to leave the the political field was that I realized I kind of I kind of woke up the day after the election and felt, wow, I found my drugs again. You know, I mean, the, the, the winning a campaign is the greatest high I've ever felt in my life. And I realized I was working so hard to get that high. And I was like, I, I got to get away from this. This is not this is not healthy.
0: Which sets me up for the, the next question, which is like I always say, if you can't be near the drug you love, love the drug you're near. You know, you go into an AA meeting and everybody's like finished their first pack of cigarettes and it's not even 9 a.m. Or they've got like so much coffee in them that, you know, they're jittering. And I get that need on some level. But how are you managing not falling in love with a new drug, a new distraction?
1: Yeah. Oh, man, I I we could have an entire show on this. I, I think that what's so scary is that, you know, look, AA is amazing. I, I will never say anything different, but you touch on a fantastic point. You know, I was working with a guy not long ago who was in recovery from drinking and his drinking problem was not good. I mean, it was just flat out was not good, but he's now smoking three packs of cigarettes a day. And I said, man, I don't know if I would make that trade. <laughs> uh, I, you know, I mean, we can, we can work on the mental health aspect. And by the way, the first thing I t- I tell every single person I coach is I am never going to replace your therapist. I don't want to. I also recommend that you have a therapist. So I want to put that flat out out there, yes. but, or a uh,
0: team of people that are working together in your recovery and that they know about each
1: other. A hundred percent. Yeah. I, 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 you know, there are very few people that I work with uh, who you know if they saw if they saw me first it was because they were kind of scared of getting a therapist and we worked on that as well but uh i i never want to you know i am not your therapist that's not my goal I see myself as, you know, me to your therapist is your you know, gym trainer to your doctor, right? You're not going to ask your doctor how many reps you should do in the gym. And if you herniate your back, you're not going to your gym trainer. And if you are, there's something wrong with you, you know, so. I agree. And I
0: always coach everybody very similar to you. They need to know I exist and I need to know they exist. Now I respect private patient confidentiality. But you can't be telling me one thing and going and doing something else with them or vice versa.
1: 100%. That
0: that if we're creating a a complete mental health, then we need to know each other's involved. It's often like when you go to the doctor and it's like, well, are you taking any drugs, prescription or non-prescription?
1: That's right. That's right.
0: Because St. John's wort will interfere with certain drugs. And I need to know that even though it doesn't show up on your Walgreens prescription card.
1: And if you lie to your doctor, bad things are going to happen, you know? And I know that, you know, again, as someone who, who is, sees my own therapist, if I lie to my therapist, you know, we're not going off the best information. And so I definitely 100% agree with you. And I recommend that same thing to every one of my clients.
0: With that said though, so now, so now you're working with people in recovery, people trying to establish mental health people developing their, their practice, does your daily practice look like that keeps you available to show up like this? So to speak.
1: So I go, I I've created my own method, but it's off of very sort of um, tried and true uh, ideas in, in the mental health sphere. You know, I call my method the most ways method because it's a mnemonic and it helps me remember it more than anything else. Uh, most ways stands for mood, stability, warning, signs, and yes, self-care. so those are the the, the big four for me and uh, mood is pretty simple. At the end of each day, I have an app on my phone and it's a, it's a moment of, um, you know, being very, very aware. Right. So I, I, I am not just the mood that I'm in at that moment, but it gives me a chance to reflect on my day. And I, I rate it from a one to five. And, um, you know, it's, it's a, it's a more difficult exercise than you would think, because it'd be very easy to say, Oh, I'm feeling good right now. And completely forget the shitty day that you had beforehand. (laughs) Right. So, um, you know, it's, it's, it's definitely a moment of, of being aware of yourself. And so that's number 1. Number 2 is looking at that stability, right? If you're if you're a 1, a 5, a 3, a 2, something's going on in your life. You know, I'm usually between a 3 and a 4. Every single day if I look at my month, it's very rare that I get outside of that 3 and a 4. But it also is good awareness because if I'm at a five, I know a a fall is coming, you know, because it's really impossible for most people and me, especially to stay at a five all the time. I mean, that's that's difficult. So it's being aware that if the next day feels overly worse than than the day before, probably isn't. It's just a fall from from the day before. So that, you know, that stability also helps. So I want to jump on that because I everybody
0: I know is now using a similar app of some kind. I've always advocated it as part of your journal exercising and sometimes even breaking it down to three parts of the day, the morning, the afternoon, or different events. So you can see, just because you went from a five to a three does not mean your your mental health is slipping. And seeing yourself at a five, you've now learned to say, okay, today was a great day you know, the weather was beautiful. We went for a walk in the park. We found a magic kite and we flew it. And my told me, like Everything was great. Tomorrow, it's going to be very difficult to have a five. So let me pace myself into knowing it's going to be a three. That's right. Instead of seeing it as why can't I have another five? That's right. Life doesn't consist of all fives and life doesn't consist of all ones.
1: And if it does, I need help. You know, I would say if I found a magic kite, that would probably be a six. I, I think that's above. <laughs> I'll show you where to get them. Um, that's wonderful. No, and I completely agree with you. I mean, that that is so key is recognizing, um, you know, like I was saying that fall, you know, a, a feeling feeling worse than a five doesn't mean that you're at a two. It means you're at a four and that can feel like a much farther fall than than it, than it is. So number two is that stability. But then number three, the warning signs, if you are looking at your stability, right? And you're like I said, you're a three, a five, whatever. Or if you're just flat a two or a one, well, let's get into that. Let's get into what was happening on those days. And those warning signs can be anything from your, your temper, you know, how was your temper during this period? How was your substance use? If you started using a lot more than you were using before, uh, your physical health, are you, are you sluggish? Are you not working out? Uh, how is your sleep? Are you having suicidal thoughts? If so, let's call your therapist right away. You know, that's beyond what I think uh, I want to handle because I think at that point, you know, it's the same thing. If you're physically sick, you're not going to go to the gym. You need to call your doctor. So, these are the things that we should start focusing on. And it's easier at that point to break that down and say, you know, man, the last week I was just, just so like in myself the whole time. I was I was ready to, to fight at a drop of the hat. Well, let's get into why you had that temper so so going on. And and maybe, maybe we're avoiding some things that are a little bit deeper down that you're struggling to admit to yourself and struggling to admit to me. And if we can break through that, we can start talking about them.
0: Yeah. And I think that's really important because. In recovery, there are always those secret triggers. Conversations with our parents, the upcoming conversation <laughs> with our parents, our spouse, our family. Um, it can be as simple as a number on a bank account.
1: That's that, right. That makes you feel
0: a certain way. I, Over, I excuse n- me to,
1: in, to interrupt. Not only a bank account, but a number on a scale. Oh, oh my God, that <laughs> that is. I can I can't tell you how many times I've had we conversations have so with so people. Many
0: broken scales in our house, piled up in the garage. That's right. Um, I tell people, for instance, like kids in foster care, ice hitting a glass is just ice hitting a glass. Ice hitting a glass to a kid in recovery or from a kid in foster care whose parent is in recovery triggers a whole different set of fears and doubts. And like, oh my gosh, I'm hearing somebody start to drink there. You know what happens when they drink and they can go off. And so, like you said, if you're seeing that flat line of emotions, I've had a two, a two, a two, a two, a two clearly there's something going on internally or externally that's causing you to shrink it. Right. Talk about it. So um, warning signs. And yep. then, then the
1: and, last- and number four was yes, self-care. Uh, and I, I put that in there as kind of a joke. Yes, self-care is everywhere right now. Everyone's talking about it. But there's a clear line between, yeah, having that glass of wine that helps you relax a little bit, that's great. Drinking a bottle a night, that's not self-care. <laughs> we, we've got a problem that we should talk about a little bit, you know. So, and, and, and look, that's not making fun of any anybody that that is uh, obviously that is struggling with a substance use disorder. But we're seeing a lot of memes right now that kind of annoy me a little bit. And it's like a picture of a woman drinking a bottle of wine, and it says self care. That's not self care, you know. That's minimal That's minimizing this person's struggle with a uh, substance use disorder. Self care can be as simple as taking a break. It's it's just recognizing. So perfect example. I was on the phone with a client earlier, and she told me that um, this will be her seventh straight day working, and I said, Why? And she said, Oh, you know, I just keep getting calls of people wanting to do stuff. And I said, at some point, it's okay to say, I need a day off. I need to take a bath. I need to go for a walk. I need to go go and just lay in bed and read for a while. It's amazing to be hardworking. Don't get me wrong. But when you're working 7 days a week and not taking any time for yourself, you shouldn't be surprised if your mood starts to drop. You shouldn't be surprised if your substance use starts to go up, if your sleep is is suffering. We all need a chance to just pause. And I have to I
0: echo that so well because I think now, not to blame covid for everything, but I think we feel Attached to more things than we typically are—the news, our health, what's going on—are the kids inside? Are the kids outside? Who are they touching? Who are they not touching? Oh my God! Did the UPS guy hit the doorbell when he rang, or did he use? His- <laughs> like we we feel as if we have to be on this hyper vigilant alert system, and still do the things that we were doing before. Right. And I tease, like I think it's been about two weeks. It's probably been longer. We snuck out onto the back patio and had a mango margarita. Now, for us in the house to drink is just like, like, I had to go figure out, I was reading, how do you make a margarita? That tells you (laughs) just how bad we are as drinkers. And it was just, it wasn't the drink. It was just the fact that we were like, in a way, having a little moment that was like not part of our everyday little moment. It was just like, look at us, we're drinking porch and the kids are locked inside and we're locked outside that's okay yeah that's okay but when you get up or when you start drinking like I can't handle this anymore get me a glass of wine that's when we begin to to meet, to, to meet with somebody when we are so bored that we think that drinking is going to be a solution to the boredom that's right etc etc and that goes for everything I've people will be like, I found myself napping every day. This is great. Okay. Are you napping because you're relaxing or are you napping because you're avoiding? That's right. Are you and that's- you're depressed or have anxiety or
1: other issues. And that's the mindfulness piece, right? And, and when someone says mindfulness, we have this uh, sort of automatic reaction to go, oh, meditation, you know, I mean, that's sort of become ingrained in the the word itself. But mindfulness at its simplest just means being aware of, of yourself, being aware of your motivations, being aware of what is is uh, the outcome for you. And it, like you were saying, if you're napping because you want a break, that's wonderful. If you find yourself doing it unconsciously, and you aren't enjoying this, or it's getting in the way of something, Anything can be bad at that point. You know, the old saying goes, everything in moderation. If you are finding yourself, like you said, having a glass of wine at dinner, that's perfectly fine. If you're ending every day by immediately grabbing that bottle of wine and you're doing it uh, unconsciously, maybe that's something we should talk about.
0: And that's where really opening that conversation among men is, I so applaud you because by being out there, by being bold and talking about your recovery and addiction and saying, look, this is just like, you know, if you had twisted your knee during basketball, there would be a recovery process. Right. What you and I going through in recovery differently right now, as you would say, is that we just don't see the physical symptom as easily. Yeah. Um, and, and we don't have the same physical rehab program that you might have if you were, you know, a famous basketball
1: player. Well, and I think that if, you know, the opioid epidemic has been just uh, awful, right? I mean, we cannot overstate how horrible it's been. But the one thing that has come out of it is it's helped people understand recovery a little bit better. The high school quarterback who gets his leg busted and gets on uh, painkillers, the next thing he know, you know, he's hooked on it, he gets off those, he's taken heroin. When he's done when we are able to get him into recovery whatever recovery looks like to him you know there isn't a tried and true aa method for that person that that isn't what aa was created to serve and so when i first started talking about this you know even members of my family would say do you ever get people who tell you you're not in recovery because you still drink and the answer is yes but let me tell you why that question in itself is harmful. And let me help you understand how to change that question to, you know, what we're talking about now, which is recovery for you is what helps you personally. It's the right path for you personally. And uh, that has been really eye opening to a lot of people. You know, I worked with a guy not long ago who'd been through AA twice and both times relapsed, And look, that happens. That That's perfectly understandable. But I asked him, I said, you know, are you, is there a problem with AA? And it just came spilling out. You know, he couldn't do this step. He didn't like that step. And I said, you know, there are other ways. And we kind of got into that and he's doing a lot better now. And the fact was that no one ever looked at him and said, we can try other methods. You know, you don't have to be forced through this. And I 100% am not blaming AA. I am blaming this idea that we have that the AA is the only way because it's not.
0: And I and I have to support you. I grew up in Minneapolis, Minnesota, which is the home of AA, the Hazelden <laughs> Foundation, and the 12-step program. Right. In part because it's winter time there so long that we had to figure a way. To, <laughs> we all <laughs> sat around and said we need to come up with something. And I'm and I have worked in um, with people in recovery. I have a degree from the University of Minnesota in recovery and grief. It's not the only solution. And just because AA has become NA and become all of the different variations, it's one modality to help you raise your awareness and begin to take responsibility for your mental health and your recovery. That's right. It is in no way the only modality. And if it doesn't work for you, that's completely fine as long as you're aware that there are alternative paths and programs. And that's really what you're saying. It's like, Do AA and do some of this and do some of that. Whatever works to get you mindful is what the ultimate goal is, because you'll have to live with that mindfulness in a way that fits forever. And yeah, it's interesting. I have family that is in the Tennessee, Virginia, Appalachia Valley, which had the highest use of OxyContin reported. I mean, it was like they were, you know. That region had like 10 times the national average and everybody was on it and kids were trading it in high schools and, you know, it was just everywhere. And now they've had to go to the extent of creating a special birthing clinic for parents who are giving birth to children addicted to opiates. So it is in a completely different situation in some ways than maybe having an alcohol and drug use. Um, not to make one better or worse, don't want to go into that judgment stream, don't send me a letter saying you don't (laughs) understand. What we're really trying to focus in on is that as men, we have a responsibility to monitor our mental health. We have a responsibility to be able to talk about it in safe circles and create safe circles for other men to enter freely. Without the, oh, what kind of man are you that you can't manage this? It's difficult. I want maybe the women, the moms, the sisters, the wives to understand that as men, we haven't been taught these conversations. We haven't been raised in a culture where conversations about how we're feeling and what our frustrations and our fears and our disappointment are normal because little boys are programmed way back in the early gym years not to talk about it, not talk about your feelings, not talk about your insecurities and doubts, to man up, to suck it up, butter, you know, let's go for it. Um, I laugh because often you'll hear women in the bathroom, you know, like the men's and the women's bathroom in public, and they'll be talking about anything in the middle of a bathroom. Like, like they just,
1: Yeah.
0: and men are just like staring at the wall silent. Yeah. And that's really how we go through our life. Sometimes as men is we don't talk, we don't interact. And if we do, it's on one of those three areas, sports, music, or, you know, whatever grilling in some cases, <laughs> like, I've seen some people have a 20 minute conversation over the big green egg.
1: Oh, I would love to. I want one so badly. (laughs) See (laughs) See how quickly we connected on that. But if I
0: asked you, how are you feeling? And, you know, no, no, no. How are you feeling? Yeah. You'd be like, ah, let's get a beer. I got (laughs) to tell you about my big green egg. What is it that you, through the Choose Your Struggle podcast, what is the one lesson that you've learned most about yourself?
1: Oh man. Uh, so yeah, first off, definitely check out the Choose Your Stuggle podcast. You can get it on Apple, Stitcher, Spotify, anywhere you anywhere you get your podcast. Um, you know, I've I've been super lucky. I started this in in February when we were starting to learn that this thing was probably going to be as bad as they thought it uh, as it wasn't. They were right, and I'm really glad I did it because. Uh, it's been my my ability to still get this message out during during this time, and you know the 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 thing that I've I would say that I've learned the most is first off you're not wrong. It's so much easier for women. More of my guests have been women than men because more women are open to this. Let's talk about mental health. You know, I've had a couple of people cancel last minute, and I, you know, no offense, they've all been men. Uh, you know, I, I've the the women have all been just so excited to to talk about this and. It, it is harder, but it's also, once you get people talking about this, once you can make them feel more comfortable, once you can make them, uh, once you can show that vulnerability and, and empathy and get them to, to re- reciprocate, it just gets rolling because people are kind of going, you mean I can talk about, th-? you know what I mean? Like, it's like, I can open up about this. And, and so it's been incredibly cathartic to see people who have kept it all in just Unburden, And some of it, you know, what's, what's so rough sometimes is I, I do these uh, hour long interviews with people that I have to cut down to about a half an hour. And, um, the last couple I've done have gone on hour and a half and some of the best stuff comes out after we've stopped recording. And I want to go, Oh, can I record again and get you to say that? And you know, it's, it's, it's because once you get that conversation, uh, feeling, like once you get them feeling comfortable, it just is amazing how much will come out and how much people will open up and say, God, I've just, yeah, it's like unburdening yourself.
0: I want to thank you for creating a safe place for men. Thank um, you. I want to encourage other men to understand that sometimes that safe place might just for you right now be one-on-one and it's okay to come into that place and say, I just need a safe place for a minute. Yeah. Yeah, uh... and, and announce as you arrive, I just need it for a minute because I've never experienced it before. I've never had that opportunity. It's funny, in our, in our church, we have small groups and I attended a men's small group and it even felt a little less than safe. Mm-hmm. And you would think sometimes our faith-based organizations that are promoting small groups would be the safest place. They're not always equipped and ready to handle the recovery and addiction question. And so understand that it wasn't a rejection of you if you tried that avenue, it's maybe you just didn't have, they were frightened by the conversation. And like all people, when they're frightened by a conversation, they try and get out of it as quickly as they can. What Jay is saying is he is a safe place for that conversation, whether it's about addiction, whether it's about recovery, whether it's about a spouse or a loved one that's going through that situation. Find your safe spaces strategically so that you can explore them and explode into them, I say, in a way. I I just, I want to encourage men, do it, do it, do it, do it, do it. We have to, especially as we are now leading a generation of men, our sons and our nephews and maybe even our grandchildren that haven't seen us in recovery or seen us in in sobriety. I encourage you to step into it Um, And wives sisters, whatever, the other gender, we're not the same animals as you guys. And to some degree, I will go ahead and admit we're probably the less evolved animals. <laughs> so what works for you may not necessarily work for your 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 male partner or the, the male person in your life. Be okay with that. Guide them to what works for them, not what worked for you.
1: And I, I think that's perfectly said. And I would say that that plus, you know, for for everybody, what work for you, you know, I, for instance, have three pages of exercises that I have worked with uh, with my clients. Some that work for me, and some that don't. But just because it works for me, or just because it doesn't work for me, doesn't mean the same will hold true with the people I work with. And so I hesitate. You know, to people just off the street or or even people in my lives making recommendations, because if I don't know you, I don't know what you're looking for. If I don't know what's what your uh, your goals of this interaction are, I'm not just going to recommend, you know, oh, go try this, because who knows? It it really takes getting involved and understanding someone to understand what's going to work for them.
0: Yeah, but do something. It only yes. works if you work it, isn't that? Just,
1: the- be, just be there, you know. Show empathy, and and that is the hardest step. Just do that to begin with, and we can go from there.
0: Yeah, I I have to sort of have my "you don't need to fix it" button always taped to <sighs> my forehead because <laughs> 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 that's my default
1: button. Oh I mean, man, I
0: can fix that. Shh, I don't want to fix.
1: There's, oh god, you're preaching to the choir. <laughs> Oh, it's we so hard. Victims.
0: It's a guy thing. I, and yeah. I don't mean to like diminish women that are master fixers. But we just want to fix it and move on.
1: 100%. That is definitely and, difficult. And and so and, and,
0: recovery is not something that you will ever fix. It's something that you will continually modify and transition. That's right. I applaud you for your 10 years of recovery and your continued you. inspiration to others for picking up the challenge and, and holding to the struggle that's most dear to you. Um, Everybody, you can find Jay at the Choose Your Struggle podcast, other places where they can dig into you. I know we have a couple in the comments section.
1: Yep. Uh, so the Choose Your Struggle podcast, anywhere that you get your podcast, uh, my website, www.jayshifman.com. Reach out to me there. Um, I've gotten a couple of people, by the way, this is this is my push. If you are interested in sharing your story, uh, I've had people reach out through my website and so far, 100% of them have had stories that I want to hear and I want to, I want to broadcast. So definitely don't hesitate to reach out. You can find me on LinkedIn or Facebook at Jay Schiffman, J-A-Y-S-H-I-F-M-A-N, on Instagram at The Next Schiffman, and Twitter at J.B. Schiffman.
0: And I'll get all of those in the notes, you guys, just so you can track and keep them. Um, Thank you again for sharing your story with me, for being so willing to jump in and just be such a lighthouse for so many of us. Keep on doing what you're doing. And if I can help you, you know where to call me for them.
1: Well, thank you. And thank you for having me. And thank you for all your work. It's always great to connect with people who not only understand, but are also doing that amazing work themselves. So thank you for all you're doing and uh, keep up the great work. And I love the show.
0: Hey, we're just a community working together. That's right. (laughs) Thank you, everybody. I will see you Monday morning at 8 a.m. Eastern for another success life. Till then, go out and live your life with success because you are worthy of it, my friends. You are worthy of it.